so clearly coronavirus is an imminent threat to refugee camps around the world. But uh, are there any specific regions or particular camps that you at the IRC are, are more concerned about? So the International Rescue Committee is focused on some of the most vulnerable people in the world. These are displaced people, refugees, but also people displaced by war and conflict inside their own country. And if you think it is really terrifying to face the prospect of COVID in an advanced industrialized country, if you're worried about ventilators in New York City, if you're concerned about the health system in Italy, just imagine what it's like to face the prospect of a virus where there isn't running water, where there isn't a proper health system, where densities of population are not just the 25,000 people per square mile that New York City has, but the 40 to 70,000 people per square kilometer that are packed in to Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh, where there are a million refugees from Myanmar. So our concern is with using the gift of time that we have in regions of Africa, in the Middle East outside Iran, uh, in South Asia, in Afghanistan, Pakistan, where we know that the disease has not yet hit with full force to do the preventative work. Because if we don't get the prevention right, there isn't the health system to take care of people, and there is going to be death on an absolutely appalling scale. Do you have a sense of how much time we have? We, are, we now know that the disease is being recorded in the world's conflict hotspots. It's being recorded in Syria, it's spiking in Afghanistan, it's being seen in Somalia. Uh, we're seeing that the conflict zones of the world, which in the main have the worst health systems and the greatest danger to public health, and now seeing recorded cases of the disease. So we're talking a matter of weeks before this disease, if unchecked, becomes really rampant. Obviously, the details of the epidemiology and how climate and other factors affect it has not yet been fully worked out by the scientists. But our message is an urgent and simple one, that as well as focusing on the real needs that exist in advanced industrialized countries. We must, must, must tackle this disease before it becomes rife in displaced and poor communities around the world, because this is a disease of the connected world and we must address it as a connected world. So to that, the UN is calling for $2 billion in emergency humanitarian aid. But as rich countries square up to this global recession, where is the money going to come from? Well, money, we have discovered in the last few weeks, is one thing that we're not short of. Because when governments determine that they will turn on the spigots in order to meet a crisis, uh, money they can find. The tragedy is it's not being spent in a fair way. It's not being spent in the countries where the disease could run absolutely rampant. And while it's right that the UN seek to raise $2 billion uh, for their own, uh, in the main for their own services, only $100 million of that goes towards the NGOs who've actually got the staff on the front line. Uh, my appeal to governments around the world, but also to private individuals, to corporations, to foundations, is to remember that as a global human community, we're only as strong as the weakest link in the chain. And the weakest links in this chain are in the conflict zones. They are in the poor states of the world. They do face the billion people in Africa, too many of whom don't have access to basic services. And unless we tackle this as a global community, we will continue to be held back by this uh, disease. So my appeal is a very simple one. The, the people who are trusted on the front line are those who have experience of infection prevention and control and have the confidence of local communities. We learned in Ebola 
that it's trust that is the most precious commodity, not money. And if you and the corporations and foundations and governments of the world arm the NGOs with the resources to establish the hand-washing stations, to establish the triage centers, to create the isolation units, even in areas where there is no proper infrastructure, even if you can isolate people there, we can get a job done to save people's lives. Picking a specific camp then, potentially in, in Syria, are there any particular things that uh, a camp, say, in war-torn Syria can do to start to protect themselves? Most people who are displaced by war and conflict don't live in official camps. Four million of the 25 million refugees in the world, a minority of the world's internally displaced, including in Syria, um, are in official uh, camps. So it's important uh, to say that, yes, there are hotspots that we are very worried about with dense population. For, if you're asking about Syria, our whole camp in the northeast of the country is obviously a major concern. It houses many people who were formerly uh, governed or ruled uh, by ISIS. We're also very concerned about the northwest of the country where there's been fighting recently and 85 health facilities have been bombed by the Russians and by the Syrians, uh, so disabling the health infrastructure of the country. So whether in a camp setting in the north uh, east or under trees and in tents in the northwest, uh, Syria is undoubtedly at grave risk of the disease running rife. So obviously international aid is incredibly important, but what can individuals do to help? Which organizations uh, should we be prioritizing? Which camps should we be looking at? Is there any regional action that say I can contribute to? Obviously I want all of your viewers and listeners to visit rescue.org to see what the International Rescue Committee's amazing teams are doing around the world, whether it be hand washing stations in the most remote parts of Afghanistan, whether it be health triaging for refugees in uh, Thailand, whether it be the provision of PPE kit to medics in northeast Syria, whether it be information campaigns to tackle disinformation in Colombia or in Pakistan, uh, rescue.org will give people real insight to the heroes on the front line who are fighting this disease. There are heroes in the health services of Western industrialized countries, but there are also heroes who are community health workers on the front line in some of the most dangerous uh, parts of, of the world. And obviously the NGO community is one that is plugged in at grassroots level because we hire locally. I have 400 staff in Northwest Syria, 400 in Northeast Syria. Those are Syrians defending their own communities. And my advice would be uh, to find organizations that have local roots and hire locally so that they have the trust of the local uh, population. What people should never succumb to is the idea that this disease is so big that it can't be, uh, it can't be hindered in its uh, path. We know that the basics really matter. And for want of hand washing, the disease takes root. For want of triaging, the disease affects a whole family. For want of an isolation center, the disease hits a whole community. And that's what we're fighting at the moment. So you said that in Sierra Leone, there's only one ventilator. How can the rest of the world help a country like that to receive more equipment? I really want to call out to people what it means to lack a health infrastructure. One ventilator in Sierra Leone, six, I believe, in Burkina Faso, 13 in the huge Democratic Republic of Congo. There's a very clear lesson in this, that universal health coverage is a million miles away for the people that we're talking about. 
but also that this disease can't be allowed to run riot until it overwhelms an already weak health system. It takes public health, the basic hand-washing, triaging, testing, and isolating that is so important. Obviously, the call by the World Health Organization for a universal health coverage is absolutely right, but that's not going to be there in time for this disease. So we need to get the basics right. Are there any initiatives out there beyond the work of the IRC that are doing an especially good job? I think that there are some really important initiatives that are taking place, often led by communities themselves. I heard from the International Rescue Committee team yesterday in Côte d'Ivoire about solidarity groups among local populations. I've heard from the Jordan team just today about how the national government is partnering with NGOs. I also want to call out a service called Signpost. It's called Cuentanos in Spanish, which is an online platform helping refugees and displaced people get information that they need. In Italy, that's helped 100,000 people access information about where to find services and how to protect themselves. So we can use the tools of the modern world to help arm people with the information, because information is the basic element of a protection strategy. Do you think there are any particular technologies or channels that are especially effective? I think that the most effective technology is the voice of people who are on the front line and are affected. There's nothing like a health worker telling you what it's like not to have the proper kit. There's nothing like a survivor of the virus to tell you that even the mild symptoms are very serious indeed. There's nothing like a mother who's lost her son to tell you what it means that every life should count. And so I think that we've got to dig into the basic humanity that this uh, crisis has exposed. It's brought out solidarity, and that needs to be uh, brought to a much higher level. Uh, obviously, the prospect of COVID-19 spreading among the world's vulnerable people is a grim one. But is there a specific element of this looming crisis that really keeps you personally up at night? Well, my professional concern is obviously about the staff and clients of the International Rescue Committee uh, who are daily risking their lives. Uh, the personal side of this is obviously about kids bickering while men they're meant to be doing homeschooling and more seriously about how my elderly mother is going to survive uh, this uh, crisis and to thank her care workers for the way that they're trying to look after her. And so this is a unique global crisis. I can't think of any other time when the whole world has been so focused on one danger, one threat. And while it's obviously the case that one's first thought is for the nearest and dearest, I really hope that this crisis also brings out the shared experience that makes us all human and that makes us all vulnerable to a disease like this. And one of the jobs of the World Economic Forum is to help bring the world together I hope that uh, through mechanisms like this, they can summon action, not just words, because there are uh, attacks on the amount of talking relative to the amount of actions. And it's actions that are going to count and time is of the essence. So in a recent interview, you mentioned pandemic orphans. Can you explain that to me a little bit more? The International Rescue Committee does a lot of work around the world with what we call unaccompanied children. These are children who are separated from their parents. They're either separated because they're separated because they flee or they're separated because their parents aren't allowed to work. And so the kids have to go out to work and then they get arrested and then they're no longer able to contact their parents. This crisis raises a different prospect, which is that 
children are seem to be uh, better insulated against this disease than parents and grandparents. And so my own staff have been talking to me about the fact that there is a danger that uh, kids lose one or tragically two parents to this uh, disease, and we'll end up with the syndrome of pandemic orphans. Now, in that case, we know what happens in the world's poorest communities. Brothers and sisters who may only be 9, 10, 12, 14 years old end up looking after younger children or grandparents step in. Now, this disease threatens the grandparents too. And all of this points to the very simple point that prevention is so much better and more reliable than cure. It speaks to the fact that every family that we can protect gives that family a chance of making their life uh, later on. And so that is something that's very much in our minds as we think about the protective measures we want to take for staff and for clients. So you've said that we live in a more interconnected world, but the actions of governments around the world do seem to point towards a lack of coordination. I think that's a really important point. This is a disease of the connected world, but the governments and the governance of this global village is much less connected, much less coordinated, much less cooperative than it needs to be. Where is the group of 20 leading industrialized countries that was formed out of the financial crisis? I was in government uh, in the wake of the, or in the middle of the financial crisis, I was the foreign minister of the UK at the time, and I saw the way Gordon Brown, Mr. Darling, Barack Obama, uh, the, the leaders of the financial community came together to create the G20. Where is the G20 today? I can tell you it's had one virtual meeting. Uh, the G7, the group of seven leading democratic countries, couldn't even come to an agreement because the US insisted on calling the disease by, a, by its Chinese name, giving it the name Chinese virus rather than COVID. And that is utterly pathetic. It's risible that the countries of the world are not able to come together in the face of a global pandemic. And I think it's right for us as citizens to say that yes, the scientists need to be connected, but the politics needs to be connected as well. This is not a time for global political game playing. It's not a time for geopolitical point scoring. It's a time for protecting humanity. And I am very concerned that the wrong lessons are being learned. Uh, we cannot live in a world of a network of fortresses, that phrase of Yuval Harari. We've got to live in a world where the common elements of humanity are properly recognized. And I think it's time to call out the short-sightedness, the myopia, that is governing too much of this response because it needs to be beaten together. A survival now is a team sport and life is a team sport. And it's time that the governments of the world showed that they understood that.